to episode one of The Animated Journey. I'm your host, Angela Enswinger, and I'm really excited to bring this show to you today. In this podcast, I will be interviewing animation professionals working in television, film, and games. And this has been something that I have been wanting to do for a very long time, and I'm really excited to be bringing this show to you today. A little about me, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast was not only so that I can interview my friends, my fellow co-workers, and also really interesting people that I have had a chance to meet over the years, and also brand new people that I have met very recently, but the other reason is that I have been on an animated journey myself. Uh, my first career was in publishing. I worked in the publishing industry for seven years, working as a writer and an editor at companies such as Vault.com, uh, the Denver Art Museum, and Intuit, uh, makers of QuickBooks and TurboTax, before changing my life around completely, going to grad school at Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and majoring in animation and storyboarding. While I was in school, I served as co-president of the San Francisco chapter of Women in Animation, where we held a variety of really cool events at Academy of Art, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and Pixar Animation Studios. And it was my experience at school, as well as my experience in Women in Animation, and my experience working as a part-time production assistant that enabled me to get an internship at Pixar Animation Studios, where I served as a production assistant intern in the development department, which was an eye-opening experience. I had an opportunity to see how movies were made and to work with really cool people. And in 2022, I will be able to tell all of you about that because when you're working at a major studio, you have to sign a lot of NDAs. So I'm really looking forward to what's coming down the pipeline at Pixar in a couple of years because then I can talk about it with all of you. But it was an amazing experience, and after that experience, I had the opportunity to work in reality of television of all places and work as a PA. That was a whole experience in and of itself. I'll tell you all about it one day. And now I'm living in the Los Angeles area and I'm working towards getting a job in the animation industry. So I've had an opportunity to not only experience the highs and lows, but also just to meet a lot of different people along the way. And what I found is that everyone is on a journey. No one person's story is exactly the same. You know, some people went to art school, some people didn't. Some people went to school the first time around. They knew from a very young age this is what they wanted to do. Other people were on a completely different path and animation just came to them one day and they realized, wow, I should be doing this instead. And I found that no matter how you got into the industry, or how long it's taken you to get into the industry, it's worth pursuing. And there is an opportunity for everyone out there to make amazing work. If you've been watching you know, any of the movies that have come out in the last few years, if you had an opportunity to see this year's Oscar shorts, you know that there is a wide variety of animation being made today and that even more amazing and awesome things can be made and even more stories can and need to be told. And I'm really excited to be bringing you the people that are working on those stories today and the people that will be working on those stories in the future. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce my very first guest on this first podcast. Her name is Sabrina McIntyre. As you'll get a chance to hear from the interview, she is an amazing person. She has done some excellent work. I know that all of you are going to love hearing what she has to say. So I hope that all of you enjoy the show. This is the inaugural podcast episode. So I'm very excited because today I'm speaking with Sabrina McIntyre, who is a production coordinator at Disney Television Animation. And she is working on the new Tangled Television series, which will be out next year in 2017. Hello, Sabrina. How are you? Hi, Angela. I'm very nice to chat with you. I'm excited to be on your inaugural episode podcast. Thank you. Happy to have you. And thank you for inviting me to record in your home. You have a really cool house. Oh, I have to you. say, she has a lot of really cool art here, folks. So just want to 
basically get into it. The whole point of the show is just to talk about not only your life as an animation professional, but just your life in general. How you got into animation, how you got into art, where you think things are going, and just about your life. So let's get started. So how did you get interested in art and animation? Were you one of those little kids who watched all the Saturday morning cartoons and drew every comic book character or what? Oh yeah, well I think everyone who's in the animation field like has that going back to childhood love of animation and that's certainly me. I always liked cartoons. I watched them whenever I could. My parents were really cool about it. They never said anything about, oh, you're watching too many cartoons. So mm -hmm. I liked Batman the Animated Series. And I remember when the Disney television animation was first releasing, like, Eat the Gummy Bears, mm -hmm. like, watching that. And so I always liked animation. And I've always liked art. I've I love Norman Rockwell, I love Van Gogh, but it took me a while to realize that I could have a career in animation without being an artist, without being an animator. Because that was really my thing. I always loved art, but I had no artistic talent whatsoever. And I know there's people who say, oh, well, you know, you can always work on it and it's a work in progress. And that's true, but some people are just more artistically inclined than others. And so I didn't realize that, you know, when you're 12, 16, you don't know beyond of like production or animation executives right. or all of those people who help make animation without being the animators themselves. This is true. I can't think of anybody that I knew in middle school or high school who said, you know what I want to be when I grow up? <laughs> An animation executive. <laughs> I don't think anybody that I knew even knew that that was a job, let alone that was a job that you could go for. Like everyone I knew, if they wanted to be involved, just thought, oh, animator. Exactly. That's the, you know, Viz Dev, like no one knew that any of that was even a thing. It was just, oh yeah, you're an animator and you work for Disney, the end. Yeah, and exactly. then later on it became, yeah. or you work at Pixar, the yeah. end. Like there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge about some of the other aspects of the job. Mm -hmm. Exactly, mm -hmm. and it really wasn't until I was earning my master's degree and I was writing my master's dissertation on animation in museum collections, mm -hmm. and I was having so much fun interviewing all of these people for my master's degree that that's when I really realized the wide variety of job opportunities but still animation adjacent or in the industry without being an animator. Okay, so let's let's back up a little bit because <laughs> you mentioned master's degree, which is very interesting in museum studies. So let's go a little bit back. So okay. you went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and you got your Bachelor of Arts in Art History. Yes. So tell a little bit about that. How did you decide, well, I love animation, I don't want to be an animator, but I love art. How did you decide being art history? Okay, well, art history, I love my degree. And mm -hmm. art history, of course, the great degree for someone who loves art, but is not an artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I just, I loved art and I knew I wanted it in my life and in my career. And once I found art history, I thought, oh, this is the best major for me. I get mm -hmm. to go to museums. I get to learn about history in a visual sort of way, mm -hmm. and animation was not, it was not a consideration when I was doing my bachelor's degree, and it was, it was really art focused from, you know, kind of the more classical approach. When you were getting your bachelor's, did you know a lot of other students or teachers who, when you told them about your love of animation, really understood what you were going for and who liked it too? Or were they kind of looking at it like, yes, that's a thing, but it's not like these other forms of art that we have going on over here? I didn't talk about it as much when I was getting my bachelor's degree. I had been to Comic-Con in San Diego for a few years, and I'm from San Diego, so that made going easy. But that was really my only greater exposure to the animation world beyond just watching it you know, in the theater or on TV. So it wasn't, 
again until my master's degree that I kind of rediscovered it in a way. So you got your master's at Sotheby's, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Sotheby's Institute of Arts in London. In London. So that, that is fancy. So talk about <laughs> the process of that, how you got into that school and then decided, all right, now we're going to show the world what animation is all about. We're going to take the art world by storm here. How did that happen? Okay. Makes it sound way more fancy than I feel like it was. But my master's degree is in art business. So what I did between my art history bachelor's degree and my master's degree was I worked at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. for four years. So because, of course, what does an art history graduate do? But we go work in museums. So <laughs> what we do. All right. Or we try to do. And so I went to work for the Smithsonian Associates, which was a department within the Smithsonian, which was really a special job because it meant that I was able to work with all of the museums within the Smithsonian Institution, mm -hmm. which is a collection of 19 different museums and research centers. Wow. So it was almost like getting a second liberal arts degree because I was working on programs presenting educational-based uh, lectures, mm -hmm. seminars for an adult audience based off of the Smithsonian's collection. So we had you know, a world-renowned scientist present one day and then the next day a conservator of African art and then the day after, you know, a behind-the-scenes tour of the American History Museum. So that was really fun, and it didn't have so much animation, but what I realized is within that field, anyone who wants to advance or hold a leadership position needs mm -hmm. an advanced degree. Okay. Um, that's just kind of the reality of that industry, that if you want to advance, you need to either have a master's degree or really preferably a doctorate. Mm -hmm. And also, my time working in a nonprofit institution, I realized that a lot of nonprofits, they have trouble operating as a business because there's still nonprofits still need to be able to support themselves. Mm -hmm. So... I decided that getting my master's degree in art business was really the perfect combination because it was like earning an MBA. So I took marketing, uh, management, finance type classes, but at Sotheby's, all of the examples and focuses were art world based. So that's, that's what drew me to the program. And... So I did that, and then going to my dissertation level, I really wanted to write about something I cared about, and I found I didn't care so much about auction price results or nonprofit development fundraising. What I really wanted to write about was combining my passion of animation, which I still loved and I'd still been going to like Comic Cons, uh -huh. you know, for years at that point, with my museum background, having worked at the Smithsonian. I thought, I am going to research and write about that because nobody else is doing it. So that's what I did. That is good. I went online and I found a little bit about that too. Oh, yeah. Online, which I'm going to read this because this just sounded fascinating. You can tell me if this is in line with what you were talking about. Okay. But it was, this study, as it is currently conceived, will focus around the research questions. Should studio-produced animation art be treated equally as single-artist-produced animation art? And how does animation art fit within the canon of art history? And does institutional recognition of animation art differ between North America and Europe? That sounds fascinating. I don't know anyone who's ever written anything like that. So that sounds like... That was a lot of fun and that you had the chance to talk to a lot of different people. And you're current, are you currently working on that still for your PhD? Or was that what you wrote so that you could get into the PhD program? Well, so what you just read was mm -hmm. my initial premise of my doctorate work, which really is a continuation of what I wrote my master's dissertation on. And that's because I just had so, so much fun writing my master's dissertation. I thought, I want to continue this. So 
I've had a really hard time finding a program that fit this very, very specific focus. And so that's how I ended up at Middlesex University in London, again, because I found a research supervisor who really saw the benefit of that and that complemented her research and interests as well. And of course, with any doctorate level research, kind of the direction you start to go, you realize you have to continue to refine it because what a lot of researchers will encounter is the research is the really fun, immersive part, but it's also so dangerous that you end up going down different tangents because you pull like one thread and it leads to another question and another question. And then you realize your initial lofty question to begin with is maybe a little too broad. Ah. So, but I, I had so much fun that I'm still interested in researching animation exhibitions in museums. Okay. So what are some of the exhibitions that you've researched so far? Well, one of my favorite examples is the Walt Disney Family Museum mm -hmm. up in San Francisco. That's a great museum. So great. That oh, is good. a really, really good museum. We've worked with them, with Women in Animation, a couple times. They are fantastic. They're a really great example of a museum, mm -hmm. and all of the exhibitions that they put on all have sort of, they of course all relate to Walt Disney because that's the mission of the museum, but then by extension, they all pretty much have an animation type component. So the Mary Blair exhibition mm -hmm. that was last year was just so fantastic. And I saw their current exhibition, which is, is closing, I think this weekend, uh, Disney and Dolly, which is really focusing on the friendship of the two people, but also their collaboration on Destino. And so the fact that that museum is able to focus on animation and present everything they present is done very respectfully, which is so nice to see for animation because a lot of my research showed that animation, a lot of museums don't quite know how to handle it. So if you have just another museum, whether it's an art museum or a history museum, it's presented kind of as a standalone novelty sometimes, and less as an art form in and of itself. Is it more like, here's a thing that exists we don't really know how to categorize it more than this is a work of art, this is why we're exhibiting it type of situation. Yes, and that's because a lot of people still don't understand how animation is made. So a lot of exhibitions end up having to spend their time explaining the animation process, which then takes real estate away from presenting the art itself. Whereas if you have an exhibition on oil paintings, you will not really see a lot of explanation of how an oil painting is made right. in those exhibitions. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, tutorial on here's how to oil paint like the masters. Here's how they mixed colors. It's more like, here it is. Here's their life. Here's where they lived. Here's yeah. how many paintings they did. Here's how they died the end. Exactly. And also once you get into the realm of computer-generated animation, that creates a whole different component because then you have the technology aspect and it's even more challenging to present because of course you have artists still. It's all artist-driven. It's not push a button and you have a full animated movie. Right. But to present, because you're always presenting to the general public when you organize a museum exhibition, so there is some of that you have to educate them as well. And so it's presenting the process as well as the artistry. Did you get a chance to go to the Pixar exhibition at MoMA or over at the Oakland Museum? I did, actually. I was able to see it at the Oakland Museum of California. Uh, so I really liked that. And I have the exhibition catalogs, of course. Mm -hmm. 
um, from both MoMA and Oakland. And I really, really liked that exhibition. I thought it was so beautiful of the way it highlighted all of the artwork, like the color scripts and the concept art that went into the Pixar films. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I really, I got to go when they had their exhibition at the MoMA in New York. I liked mm -hmm. it because they really showcased here are all the steps and they had drawings and maquettes and they just had a lot of things where at the time, there were a lot of things that you just really, as the general public, didn't really get to see. Mm -hmm. So it was really exciting to be able to go and see it and look at it and go, oh, this is how they figure out all of their ideas. They actually have to figure them out. It's not just, okay, here it is, and it's just brilliant and on the screen. So it was actually very reassuring. Yeah. You know, exactly. for someone that wants to do that, looking at that going, oh, it's a process. Oh, I like process. Okay, that's good. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But one of the examples with that exhibition in particular, it debuted at MoMA in New York, the mm -hmm. Museum of Modern Art, which is a world-renowned, respected modern art museum. So it spoke very highly that they did host the Pixar exhibition, showing that the art of Pixar can fit within that setting. And actually, MoMA has been, as an institution, always very supportive of animation art. Um, Walt Disney was one of their original board members. Really? Yeah, going way back to their founding. So MoMA, even they've hosted animation exhibitions their whole history. But with the Pixar exhibition, so it debuted at MoMA, and then the very next institution it went to was the London Science Museum, which, that's a very, very different museum. That's a very different setting and place to show and exhibit the artwork. And so there's really no other exhibition that would equally be at home in MoMA and in a science museum. And that's one of the challenges of animation, that if the exhibition is really focusing on the art of it, it shouldn't quite fit the exact same exhibition should not exactly fit in a science museum and so that's actually one of the reasons why Pixar's their latest exhibition and that debuted at Boston's museum which has a little bit more of a, a general topic type focus for the museum so that Pixar can fit in well there and then that exhibition their new one is going next to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia which is another world-class museum, but not quite as modern art focused okay. as like MoMA was. Okay, that's smart. That's really smart to do it that way. And I'm curious too, just going back a little bit, how did you get your job at the Smithsonian? What was that process like? Because I know that that's part of the journey of how you decided then, you know, to get your master's and your PhD. So what was What's the process for working for them? Because that in and <laughs> of itself is a very cool job to get to be a part of that. Um, it was a really cool job. I got to do a lot of really interesting things. And that was a challenging job to get as well. That involved four, four interviews. And, of course, they background check and sort of like working for the government because it's the Smithsonian and I I found a job posting and I applied. Um, I didn't have any personal connections at the time. It was just one of those, I saw the posting and I caught the attention of whoever reviewing the resumes. Wow, so you heard it here folks. Skills plus internet research it actually works so never fear <laughs> it does it does um i love talking to people about how they got their jobs mm -hmm. and job hunting and it really is a combination if you do that two-pronged approach mm -hmm. of continue to apply look for job postings and go that traditional route and then also sort of network with people in the industry and let them know that you're looking so that if you hear of an opening, that you have kind of those two paths, kind of increasing your odds of mm -hmm. finding the right thing at the right time. That's smart. And that actually is a perfect segue 
for what you're doing now. So tell me, how did you go from, you know, you're working on your PhD, mm-hmm. you've worked at the Smithsonian, mm-hmm. you've gotten to live in London, which yes. is awesome. How did you decide, you know what, I'm going to make the jump. I would like to work for an animation company and not just an animation company, but the animation company that started everything else. Well, I once I decided that I wanted to work in animation and I wanted to work in animation production because mm-hmm. I realized that's where my skill set can be the most useful, that I'm really good with budgeting and deadlines and spreadsheets, all of that stuff, which I actually find kind of fun. That's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you do. And trust me, everyone who's on the art side is extremely grateful for everyone on the production side. You guys help make sure that everything stays funded and everything's on time. See, so that is, that's, that's fantastic. Because yeah. I don't know about any other creatives, but if it was up to me, it'd be like, oh, just keep working on it and noodling on it till it's really pretty. And so it's good to have someone say, nope, we have to get this out. It has to actually be a thing. We can't just hold on to it forever. Yeah, it has to be a thing. The world wants to see it That's now. right. And that's what I love about animation production because I love being able to work with artists and I love being able to see the artwork and I'm just so amazed every day at the talent I get to be surrounded by. I just feel really fortunate and happy that I found a career that I feel like I can use my particular skill set but still feel like I'm in a very creative environment. So... When you were doing your research, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you must have met professionals in the animation industry to talk to to them for your research. Is that how you found out about the entire production process and that that was something you'd want to do? Or was it more of just watching movies and reading books and then discovering, oh, here's a job where I'd be a perfect fit? It was through my research that I was learning about the production process in greater detail and being able to talk to people about what their jobs were, which, again, is really interesting, all of Mm -hmm. the things you learn. And then once I decided, okay, that's the job for me, it took, honestly, about a year before I actually ended up in a position because with my background on my resume, other than my dissertation, it nothing said animation. So I really, really had to convince people that I was serious about wanting a job in the animation industry and that I did have valuable skills that would mm-hmm. transfer. And, you know, the job process is hard. And then changing career fields is has its own level of challenges. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Well, really that nothing on my resume said animation. My master's dissertation said animation, but in the whole scheme of everything, that was really, really tiny. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was job hunting, I was in my doctorate program already. Mm -hmm. And so I also... I basically had to learn to take that off of my resume. Really? Yeah. Because if I was just blindly sending my resume without being able to have a conversation with somebody, they would see that I was still actively in school and not realize that it was an independent research format that I could fit around a professional schedule. They just thought, this person is still in school, that's not going to fit. Okay. And also at that level, perhaps this person might be overqualified for something. So I did not want to send that message as well. So again, some of the realities of job hunting. So took the doctorate work off of the resume, still left the master's degree on because I had actually achieved that. And I looked for other opportunities. And that's how I became involved with animation magazines, uh, World Animation and Visual Effects Summit, because I see three years ago now so I was a volunteer I thought I want to increase my exposure to the animation world show people that I really am genuine about this so I volunteered for the summit very good 
And for those who don't know, so the World Animation and VFX Summit is this professional animation convention that's held in Marina del Rey every year. And it's spearheaded by Animation Magazine. And it's a chance for animation professionals to get together in a professional setting and have breakout sessions and talks and discussions and meet other people that they'd want to work with. Because a lot of it involves co-productions between companies that are from Spain and Italy and Japan and India and Canada and Brazil and all over the world. And it's actually where Sabrina and I met because you were the volunteer coordinator and I was one of your volunteers. Yes. So, and it was a, I can attest, it's a very great organization. And if you have a chance to either attend the conference or volunteer, you should because every animation convention I've ever been to is great. You know, CTN is great, Ape is great, all these different things are great. And the Animation and VFX Summit is great, but it's great for a different reason in that it's more business focused. Yeah, and that's a side, the business side. It's a side that a lot of people don't know about and also don't see. And whether you're more business minded or not, it's just good to know that that exists. Yeah, exactly. The, mm -hmm. the summit's all about international co production. Mm -hmm. So it's not a fan convention right it's its own thing which definitely you know there's there's a place for both so when you were looking for jobs were you looking for jobs overseas or had you already moved back to the states and then decided i'm going to start looking for jobs right now before i'm done with my dissertation i i did look for some time to stay in London, but immigration uh, restrictions were very tight at the time, so there was not really a place for me. So I moved back to the States, and I initially moved back to New York. I was living and job hunting in New York City and trying to find an animation job there. So I did the networking thing, met people, because I really didn't know anyone in the industry, anyone there. So it was just about educating myself, getting to know people, and then through other reasons, I ended up moving back to California. I'm originally born and raised in San Diego, so I thought, well, if I really want a job in animation, I need to be in Los Angeles. Which, funny enough, when I was living in New York, job hunting, and I joined Women in Animation in New York, Oh, did you First. know? Uh, did you know Lisa? Yes. All right. Yeah, I did. Uh, she's lovely. Yes, Lisa is great. Um, so that that was another mm -hmm. thing I did to sort of increase the animation on my resume. I joined animation professional organizations. So anything to increase animation uh, visibility for me. And so you know, everyone was wonderful in New York, really wonderful. But I kept hearing over and over again. Be in LA. I heard the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, when so. I live there too, it's like, there are more jobs out there. So out there, it's kind of where you need to be at the moment. Particularly if you're just trying to break into the industry. Yeah. I guess it's a little bit easier to find a job elsewhere if you're kind of already established. You're really trying to break in. It's easier where there is more opportunity to do so. So, you know, one of the things if you're networking and you're talking to people and they're taking time out of their schedule to give you advice, it's nice if you listen to it. Yes. <laughs> so. Especially if it's multiple people that don't know each other exactly. telling you the same thing. You know, if it's one person... I mean, you should still listen, you know, give them the benefit yeah. of the doubt. But if it's five different people all saying, you should try this, like, you know, let me at least try it yeah. just to see. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Exactly. Let me at least see if this is real. Yes. And so that's what I did. All right. And yeah, through greater networking, just wanting to get to know people, you know, I ended up finding out about a position at Disney Television Animation. Um, I was fortunate enough that they gave me a chance. Great. So for those out there, because I know there are people out there, that they hear the word networking yes. and part of them closes up and they're just like, ah, just, it just overwhelms or frightens them. Do you have any tips for networking that made it, you know, effective for you and just a little bit easier, maybe not so scary to go and talk with people? Yeah, it's, I mean, the word networking really 
does kind of strike fear in the hearts of some people. And it's really not that, like, if you're doing it right, you're just having conversations with interesting people. That, to me, that's how I looked at networking, of I wanted to hear their, people's career stories as inspiration for me. So I was using that to get to know people and also just asking them kind of what we're talking about now. How did you get involved in the industry? Um, what worked for you? Why do you like it? And that's, that's fun. If you're actually just having a conversation with someone, it's kind of nice. I agree. I agree. It's, it's less of, I try to think of it not as, okay, what can they do for me or what can I get out of them? Because that's more the used car salesman approach. Yeah. So you don't want to think of it that that's way. That's not nice. That, that's, it's not nice. And that's, just, that's just not cool. You shouldn't do that with anybody, whether you want a job or not. But I agree with you. It's more, this person's interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to this person. Hey, we both get along. Great. Exactly. And that's it, you know, and sometimes they become friends, sometimes mentors, sometimes acquaintances or coworkers, you never know. But yeah. it's just it's just nice to hear people's stories. Especially I, since our industry is pretty small. Yeah. You start to meet people and you realize how many people know the same people that you know. So it just behooves you just to just to get to know people and be kind. Yeah, that's just be a nice person yeah. in just, general. Just good advice just for life. Just I know, right? Be, be cool. Just be cool, <laughs> you know? Be cool, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. All right, so that first job, what was your first job in the industry? What did you do? I was production secretary for Wander Over Yonder. Ooh, Craig McCracken show. Very cool. Yeah, it was it was really fun. I, I, oh my gosh, I love that show. And the second season is airing now. So Ooh. that's on Disney XD. Very good. Um, <laughs> Plug for Disney XD, great channel. Yes. <laughs> so like I said, you know, I was switching industries, really having to convince people that I was serious about a career in animation. So I was very happy to accept, you know, an opportunity when it came. So I... Uh, accepted the position of production secretary so it was a great foot in the door ground level of mm -hmm. getting to actually see animation production and because everyone I've learned you know every studio does it a little bit differently it's all about pipelines and, and how to go from A to Z script to screen all right <laughs> and so I was in that position for a few months and then Again, they gave me the opportunity that I was promoted to production associate. Okay. So that gave me the opportunity to be a lot more hands-on with production and the art assets and to really learn. Like, I love learning and being able to participate in the process, sit in on, like, storyboard handouts and um, listen to script notes being given and just... It's amazing kind of what you can learn just being in an environment listening. What were some of the things that you learned that you were just like, wow, this is, this is amazing. I had no idea. Um, for television animation, examples of being able to reuse animation. Because I'd never thought of that before. But when you're you know, producing multiple episodes and multiple seasons... The ability to reuse, um, you know, a simple example of a coffee mug that was designed for one episode and then being able to reuse it for another episode, keeping that same design but maybe changing its color. Okay. And for me, for some reason, that was just really surprising of, oh my gosh, it's done. Mm -hmm. And it's done... You know, it's, it's on a small scale. There's so much work involved in the animation process and everything is, is designed specifically so that it makes sense for that episode. But cases where you can reuse, like for example, if characters are going back to the same setting over and over again, that you can reuse that background. I mean, that just makes sense, but until you actually see it, it just had never occurred to me before. That's, that is true, because kind of sometimes think that, oh, if it's animation, everything has to be drawn over and over and over. 
So I imagine it's very cost effective too, if you're able to slightly tweak things instead of creating, okay, now we have to completely create all new everything, backgrounds, props, characters, everything, and not tweak anything. Well, and that's a little different of television animation versus feature film animation. Because for the feature film animation, everything is designed for the film. And then unless there's a sequel, you Mm -hmm. don't really have the opportunity to reuse it. But with the television show, for the premiere episode, again, everything still has to be designed. Right. It's no different. You are creating an entire world and characters from scratch. But then as you continue those stories, you are able to revisit certain elements. Good. And then what is the timeline between having that episode getting it together, and then seeing it on the air. How long does that typically take? That varies, you know, with the, the show and the schedule, that sort of thing. But from what I've seen, sort of a rough script to screen is perhaps about 14 months. Okay. So that's both long and short, mm-hmm. if you think about all of the work that goes into it for that time. Something that we did for Comic-Con was a hiatus video where Craig kind of shows the animation process in a really fun way. And if you you search on YouTube, like the hiatus, wander over yonder, (laughs) you'll find it. And in visual forms, it it sort of explains the, you have a script Mm -hmm. and then the executives give notes. And then you go back to the script, and then it's designed, and then it will be shipped overseas, and then it has to be sound mixing, and it goes through in three minutes, the whole process. And there's retakes, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a work in progress until you deliver it to the channel or mm-hmm. the theater. It's, it's wow. like with any art form, you can constantly sort of refine it and change it and make your creative edits till you can't anymore. Until they rip it from your hands and go, no, it has to go on the air, you have to stop. Exactly, until we say deadlines. <laughs> the dreaded word, but that's good for everyone. I know, I know, production <laughs> deadlines. No, but that, that's, it's a good thing, it really is. So tell me, what's the difference between production secretary and production associate? That's kind of loosely defined based on the needs of the show or the production itself. As production secretary, I did a lot of scheduling. So scheduling meetings, ordering supplies, make sure that, you know, everyone on the production had kind of the administrative support that they needed. And then with production associate, it was a little bit more hands-on with the art assets themselves of uploading them into our art tracking software or handling more of the storyboard designs. So again, more hands-on of the art assets. But that that varies from production to production. It depends on the studio Mm -hmm. um, and the production and what's, what's needed out of each role. So then tell me, how did you make the jump from production associate to production coordinator? I would like my long-term goal is I'd like to be a producer okay one day so Mm -hmm. that's that's my goal of you know being in production and of course with any career goal to work hard and learn as much as you can and be ready to take that next step in your career Mm -hmm. kind of when the opportunity presents itself and I sort of you know had expressed my desire to learn more and take on that next challenge Mm -hmm. which was a coordinator position and I was fortunate enough to still be able to stay with Disney television animation and that's how I transitioned to Tangled. So now that you're on Tangled, what are some of your you know job descriptors that you're doing for Tangled? That let's see it's been keeping me busy so the way we're organized there is that a coordinator is kind of responsible for the scheduling, art tracking for a particular episode. So I work with our storyboard artists to make sure that they have the script when they need it, that they know the deadlines, that they have all of the either reuse art or preliminary designs that they need. Working with 
breaking down the script to see once it's in my hand of, oh gosh, where are we going this week? <laughs> um, what exciting adventures and, you know, what new coffee mugs or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever need to be designed. It's just an example. All of Rapunzel's hair. Oh, her hair. Our first episode is supposed to premiere not until about February 17th, so mm -hmm. I can't talk, you know, about plot lines or anything like that, but it's it's based off of the feature film, so a lot of the main characters get to come back. Oh, good. We get to have fun. Everyone's favorites. <laughs> so that lot, lots of hitting of characters with frying pans, I hope. So, so we will see. So how was it to you? I meant to ask this a little bit earlier, but what was it like getting into step into Disney television animation? It was absolutely thrilling to be able to work with really such a historic company um, such as Disney that they've been around producing animation that just generations love. So like that was kind of enormous. It also felt amazing because like I said, it took me almost a year of job hunting to finally get an animation job opportunity. I was like, yes, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, and that's encouraging for people to know, because I think a lot of times, I know I felt this way and lots of friends from school and other people that I've met where, you know, you're in school and you think, I'm going to be the one to get a job right out of school. Yeah. And if you don't, sometimes there's that feeling of, I failed. It's like, no, you haven't failed. You're actually quite yeah. normal. It takes a while. It's you know, it can actually take quite a long while, like two to like eight years sometimes. Yeah. So it's good to hear that. It yeah. can take a while. Just, yeah, and just be persistent. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I like to say pleasantly persistent. That's sort of what I say when I'm, you know, even now job networking or giving people networking advice. It's just being about pleasantly persistent. If you want a job or a place in the industry or, you know, if that's what you want, then you have to be willing to put in the work to keep going which I know has its discouraging moments, but just keep at it. And, you know, the whole pleasant part is don't annoy people along the way. <laughs> like, They'll be like, hey, look, it's me again. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you still have to be respectful of everyone's time. Sometimes there just isn't an opportunity for, you know, for them to offer to you. But it's about keeping that pleasantly persistent and keep going and whatever motivates you just believe in it so then speaking of being pleasantly persistent okay. and networking and all that so tell us more about the animation advocate that is your handle on twitter and instagram so oh, what yeah. is what is all of that about yeah, Animation Advocate. Well, that was another initiative that I did in my you know, job hunting and convincing people I was serious about animation. And the Animation Advocate part falls into my desire to want to share with people and promote animation as an art form. It's to be respected like any other art form. When I was doing my master's dissertation research, I did encounter a lot of people who were just dismissive of, oh, it's cartoons, oh, it's animation, and not really, because without understanding kind of the work and the artists behind the animation, it seems almost easy for some people to dismiss. So Animation Advocate was my way of having an outlet to kind of push content out into the world that says, look, this is an artist or this is animation in a museum. I love traveling and so just this last May I went to Europe and there was a film museum in Frankfurt, Germany that had an amazing exhibition that included animation. The film museum was focused on film, and they seamlessly integrated animation examples with traditional live-action film examples, and they were just so respectful with how they handled it. They weren't dismissive of animation. Hmm. So I liked being able to take pictures in the museum and kind of 
have an outlet to share that. I feel like it's because of the history and how animation came about on that side of the world that they see it more as an art form. Whereas here, I think it started as an art form here. You can correct me because, you know, you wrote about the entire subject. But I believe here it's more of it started as an art form and then it became more for children, which isn't a bad thing that's for children. I think the problem, though, is that in some ways it's almost stuck as it can only be for children. And I feel like it should be, no, it can be for everybody, children, teenagers, adults. And I think that overseas, they understand that better. It's just different perspectives and kind of different cultural perspectives. And mm -hmm. that is a question that I wanted to research. And there's still a lot more to research to kind of figure out why that is. Do you see that changing since you've been involved with this for a while now? Do you see people's perceptions of animation changing now where people see, oh, it can be for everyone and it is an art form. There's more to it than what people think. Uh, what I have seen since I started researching animation within a museum context is an expansion of animation being presented by museums. Because when I first started researching my master's degree, which is a few years ago now, there was a history of animation in museums, but some of the examples felt like a few years in between. And now there's multiple exhibitions worldwide that you can choose from to see animation. For example, the latest Pixar exhibition that's just going from Boston to Philadelphia probably have more of a tour. Uh, DreamWorks Animation produced a huge exhibition, which is part of a global tour now. I think wow. it's in Singapore. Disney's Animation Research Library is constantly collaborating to present Disney artwork in exhibitions. And of course, you have the great work that the Walt Disney Family Museum is doing, that with every exhibition that they're presenting, it has that animation component. So <laughs> I, I feel like from the institution, Institution-wise, I'm seeing more and more examples there, but it's hard for me to judge um, on a like person-to-person -person level because mm -hmm. I'm in the industry now. So, yeah. so everyone's like, like, of course it's an art form. Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't it be? It's nice, you know, yeah. I'm talking to my animation artist friends. Like, yes, I appreciate the significance yeah. of it. I found that the true test <laughs> of that is going home and talking to people is... I'm the only person in my family involved in the arts, with the exception of uh, two of my cousins. Everyone else is doing things like finance and insurance and whatnot, which is great, and I'm glad that they're doing it. Oh, but I found that that's the real test. Uh, when you go outside of L.A. and talk to people in other states and say, what do you think of this? And yeah. usually the answer, depending on how often they watch movies, kind of falls between the I really like animation and, hey, that's a Pixar movie, right? And they just assume everything's from Pixar or Disney. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. People who aren't in the industry do kind of lump of Disney creates all animation that's yeah. ever theatrically released, right? <laughs> yeah, which, like, I don't know. There's more to so, it than that, but yeah. hey, but you saw it. Exactly. So my, my thing is, okay, so you don't know the studio, but you at least saw it and you liked it. Okay. Yeah. That, that's a good starting point. Let me tell you more. Exactly. So now you know about this other studio and you can watch all of their movies too. Exactly. And that's mm -hmm. part of also what I wanted to undertake as the animation advocate. You know, each studio can have its own, its own vision and its own artistic output. And it's getting that kind of recognition that not having it all lumped together. You know, Van Gogh didn't paint everything during the Impressionist time period or the post-Impressionist time period. There were other artists too. Yeah. And it's respecting and appreciating each of their individual contributions. And like you said, the different museum exhibitions help. Yes. And the different films help. Because the other thing too is animation is relatively young. Yeah. When you think of all the other art forms that have existed. So for it to have this kind of global exposure is actually pretty amazing considering it's hasn't been around for that long a period of time. Yeah. So I feel like it's just a matter of time before it grows to the scope where more people know of the other studios and the process. And now, I mean, you have 
internet and Blu-rays and DVDs oh, and all yeah. these books. Like I remember when I was first researching animation when I wanted to go to school, I think there were maybe there were like ten books, which is pretty great because you hear of <laughs> other people like yeah. Brad Bird or whatnot talking about it and they're like, Yeah, when I was a kid there was one. Yeah. You know, there was like a book exactly. you could read. And that was it. And then when Frank and Ollie came around there were two. <laughs> so at least now there's more exposure to it. Yes. So last question okay. I want to ask you for the evening is everyone is always curious about mentorship, finding a mentor, getting a mentor, having that person, you know, to talk to, to help you out as you go on your career path. Mm -hmm. Did you have any mentors as you were transitioning from working primarily for museums to working in animation? I didn't so much find a mentor. I started making friends which in sort of a way, I mean, it's, it's different, but also has the similarities. I really do think it's important to be able to identify a career mentor. I was fortunate enough to have one while I was at the Smithsonian. I had a, a great career mentor and we're still friends now. And so it's, it's nice to have that connection, but it's, it's not so much somebody of like just picking it out. You have to have a connection, but then also that they're doing something that you can learn from. So they don't even have to be exactly doing what you want to be doing, mm -hmm. but just being able to benefit and learn from their career experience already. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Sabrina, for your time. It's a pleasure getting to speak with you today. You're welcome. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you could be a part of it. It's yeah. always fun to talk with you. So uh, just to let people know, where can people find you online? Oh, online? Well, I am semi-active, sort of, on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> As an animation advocate, so Twitter handle at uh, Annie Advocate, and then Instagram at Animation Advocates. All right, so you can check out all of Sabrina's thoughts and ideas and articles <laughs> on that. So again, thank you very much for being part of the episode, and thank you all for listening. Thanks, Angela. And there you have it. Special thanks again to Sabrina McIntyre for being my very first guest. It was wonderful having a chance to talk to her. And as I mentioned, I will include links to her sites in the show notes. I'll also include links to the World Animation and VFX Summit, Women in Animation, the Creative Talent Network, as well as ASIFA Hollywood. So if you're interested in volunteering, attending, or joining any of those organizations and finding out what wonderful events they have coming up, also, I want to give a shout out to everyone who is on staff or volunteering over at Fan Alley. They just had their very first convention this past weekend, the Ground Zero Animation Expo in Anaheim. In a word, it was fantastic. It was one of the best conventions that I've ever been to. And I have been to a lot of conventions, big and small. It was very well organized. It was extremely affordable. And they had a wonderful selection of artists and really amazing panels. The panelists were great. They answered a lot of questions. They talked about a wide variety of topics. Everyone I met there was super nice. They offered a lot of advice and a lot of inspiration to everybody there. And I just wanna say thank you to Fan Alley. You guys are the best. If you're going to be in Southern California anytime this year, make sure to stop over in Anaheim and stop over at their store buy all their stuff. They are wonderful people. I'll include a link in the show notes to their store so that you guys can go and make sure to tell them hello. And also they will be holding their second animation convention in August. So make sure to sign up for their newsletter and check that out. They're going to have some other conventions as well. They're planning on having a cosplay convention. They're going to have one on puppeteering and a variety of other things. So no matter what your interest, they're probably going to have a convention that speaks to you. So make sure to check out their website and see what's coming up later this year. Also, I want to give a shout out to two people that I had a chance to meet in person for the first time, whose podcasts I have been listening to for a while and who have served not only as an inspiration to me in my professional life, but an inspiration for how I wanted to do my show. And that's Chris Wimberly and Cassie Soliday. 
They are amazing people. Uh, Chris is the host of the Animation Network, which is a podcast that focuses on professionals working in television animation. And Cassie is the host of the Ink and Paint Girls podcast, which is a podcast focusing on women working in the animation industry. Also, Cassie is currently writing the Animation Network podcast newsletter, which all of you should sign up for. It comes out every other Thursday, and in it, they highlight events happening in town, job offerings. You can also list your profile by sending them an email and letting them know, hey, I'm looking for a job. People should hire me. They also offer interviews with artists, and they have links to their artwork so that you can check out new artists, both people that are up and coming and professionals. It's a wonderful resource, and both of them have amazing shows, and they're both really super nice people. So when you're done listening to this episode today, you should check out on iTunes both of their podcasts, subscribe to them as well, and you will just have a plethora of animation information that you can listen to at work, in the car, while you're jogging, at home, wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to click on the subscribe button in iTunes to subscribe to the show. And if you like the show, leave a five-star review. I love five-star reviews. You can also follow the show on Twitter at AnimJourney. That's A-N-I-M Journey. And you can become a fan on Facebook by following the Animated Journey Facebook fan page. And if you're interested in following me on Twitter, my handle is at SketchySoul. And you can check out my online portfolio by visiting www.SketchySoul.com or my Tumblr account, which is www.sketchysoul.tumblr.com. So I just want to thank everybody out there for listening to my very first episode of my very first podcast. It's been a lot of fun. So be encouraged, and until next time, have a good day, everybody. Bye.